Money FM 89.3, best of the evening runway. Eurowatch. Money FM 89.3, time now to take a look at headlines out of the European region. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, wants five more years. Mm, interesting. Maybe she still has more things to do. Well, after months of speculation, Ursula von der Leyen has confirmed her intention to do this. The announcement was made earlier this week after a meeting of her party, Germany's Christian Democratic Union, which backed her bid by unanimity. So the nomination will be confirmed by acclamation in early March during the annual Congress of a Political Family, the center-right European People's Party. So will she be back for a second term? Well, how will she defend her green legacy and lock in support for another run? We got just the person to tell us more about this, Dr. Samia Puri, Associate Fellow UK in the World Program at Chatham House. Dr. Samia, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm very well, thanks. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too, sir. I suppose to start us off, let's go easy. Your reaction to uh, Ursula von der Leyen wanting five more years. She's been hailed as the most transformational president of the European Commission since Jacques Delors. Your thoughts? Well, the thing that with Ursula von der Leyen that people may not remember immediately is in the German government, she was the German defense minister. Mm. And I suppose you could say, come of the hour, come of the woman, mm. a former defense minister in the European Commission is probably what the European Commission needs, given that Europe has its biggest war on its hands since World War Two. So as well as being very competent, she is also, I think, uh, quite professionally attuned to effectively re-energizing Europe's defenses. As we know, Trump has said, European countries, you've got to pay your 2% of GDP for defense. That's a huge transformation for parts of the continent around how it arms itself, how it prepares to support Ukraine and how it prepares to defend itself, potentially without the Americans as engaged in the future. So I think that's one part of it. The other part is, of course, she's a very competent administrator and she's acquitted herself very well. But I do think the fact that the war is ongoing and there's a large large need for Europe's defences to be re-energised is, is part of the reason why she probably wants to stay for another five years and why she, she may well be allowed to do so. So can, can she bring in more to the table than what we already are seeing, especially as you mentioned with Trump and all the commotion about NATO? I suppose if you imagine hypothetically 12 months from now, Donald Trump comes back into the Oval Office. Someone like Ursula von Leyen is actually quite a good European counterweight to his instincts. Mm-hmm. She, she'll be very seasoned in the job by that point. And so when inevitably there are problems across the Atlantic between the US and the Europeans, she'll be a very credible, very stable figure. Uh, what more can she bring? Well, let's, let's wait and see. But I think Europe is, the EU is known for its technocracy, its technical policy competence. And she's certainly a very competent administrator. So I think that's part of the reason uh, she's favoured for continuing in the job. Any thoughts on the EU green transition as well? Oh, well, I, I don't know whether the EU will be able to necessarily afford all aspects of this green transition if it also has to rearm at a furious rate. But I think there's always a difference between what's urgent and what's important. Things like the Ukraine conflict are considered very urgent. Arguably, the climate crisis and the, the energy transition is actually more important. But it's having to continually make that case for allocating funding, not only for the green transition in Europe, but also Europe's ability to engage countries in the global south, helping them to, contributing through development spending to help fund their own green transitions as well. That's something that comes out of the COP summits.
All right, doctor, let's talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine two years into this conflict now. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Russia is getting what it wants, a prolonged war effort in the Ukraine. So what can we see uh, moving forward? Where is this going to go or has the situation changed? Oh, well, I think the situation is going to be a slow grind where the Russians continue to probably, I mean, quite literally meter by meter, recapture parts of the Donbass that they felt they should have kept since the end of the Soviet Union. The fall of the town of Avdika, which was on the front line actually for a decade since the first invasion in 2014, that fell to the Russians just in the last few days. That's the first significant town that the Russians have recaptured or captured in many, many months. But I think Ukraine is in quite a lot of trouble. And Zelensky isn't flavor of the month, as we've discussed in previous weeks, because of not only the Israel-Gaza conflict taking over people's attention, but also because Ukraine's counteroffensive failed totally. And there's a feeling in the air in some European countries that opinion might shift uh, quite considerably, I think, against optimism around Ukraine's ability to, to continue to fight to win. So if that shifts, then we'll expect to see a desire to support Ukraine, but basically to support Ukraine to hold the line rather than to recapture territory that's lost to the Russians. And that's going to be a big shift for quite a few European politicians to sell to their publics who've told them Ukraine can win in different ways across the last couple of years. How crucial is the year 2024 to this conflict? Um, and I bring that up because in light of the amount of political elections that are happening all around the world, including the one that could change the most opinion, the United States presidential elections at the end of the year. Uh, yes, exactly. The one that will change the least is probably the Russian election. Yeah. But the one that will change the most is, of course, President Donald Trump Part 2, who he's long since expressed this overblown ability to end this war yeah. you know, moment, in the moment he comes into office. Yeah. But functionally what that will mean is if... If he then basically, because obviously at the moment the U.S. funding Ukraine, which is sort of stuck in Congress, uh, there's still the expectation it could pass. Under Trump, that just wouldn't pass. That's the biggest leverage America has over Zelensky and the Ukrainian government. The Ukrainians will have to do a 180 if they completely stop receiving U.S. military assistance. Exactly. Uh, unless the Europeans can uh, step up, which is where we sort of come back to that original point. Ursula von Leyen is, is clearly you know, thinking that this time next year she may actually be having to leave the European Commission to, uh, to plugging the gap. Um, unless, you know, if they don't, then Ukraine is, is really in trouble. So, Doctor, practically or realistically speaking, if everyone can get down on the table and start negotiating a, well, a peace pact on this, what is the likely outcome? Ah, so the idea of peace negotiations uh, around the Ukraine conflict is a pretty vexed issue because the Ukrainians and Russians, they did negotiate back in March, February, March 2022, straight after the invasion began, but then the negotiations fell apart. So they have a precedent for talking to each other with mediation. What can we expect? We can expect that the Russians will, as a negotiating style, I'm not passing moral judgment, mm. as a negotiating style, will be very canny poker players who are very capable of cheating at every turn. Sure. And that is a style of negotiation. Mm -hmm. it is not, you know, yeah. We're not talking about a playground game here. We're yeah. talking about war and peace and historical ideology and grievances. So there's, and that was always the argument against Ukraine negotiating, is that the Russians are not trustworthy negotiating yeah. partners. 
So we can expect duplicity, we can expect that. But I think functionally what we'll end up with is a de facto division in Ukraine yeah. where the Russians can't be kicked out of a certain territory. They don't want to leave. And some sort of negotiation has to stabilize the conflict so it doesn't carry on at this level of intensity with this horrific loss of li- losses of life on all sides. Dr. Samir, a point of speculation maybe, uh, or, or curiosity, what are the odds that this drags out to a point where we see a DMZ uh, of their own, or one side just simply runs out of funding? Yeah, I think I've always placed the odds on that sort of situation. I think when, about a year ago, people became over-enthusiastic that Ukraine could win totally, that the Russians were totally you know, hollow as a military entity, as a society, everything else. I never thought that was the case. And I really still think it's a matter of how many years we have to see this war play out before something along those lines actually arises. Mm. Now, what form and shape that takes, who knows? But the other interesting thing is the, the, the role of non-European powers in mediating some sort of end to this conflict. I can well imagine that Turkey was a mediator in March 2022, those yeah. failed talks. Turkey, possibly even China on the side as a guarantor, and then, of course, America and the EU as a guarantor for the Ukrainian side. That's the way these things normally work. You need someone big in your corner to help coax you to negotiate and table and to provide whatever guarantees and and private conversations that that will actually stabilize the situation. Let's talk about the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Of course, he uh, died in prison uh, on Friday after serving a 19-year term. What does his death signify? I think in the, in the instance of his death, so it's a very tragic death of a man who you know, had far more courage than most to stand mm. up against a regime that was never going to tolerate that sort of dissent. The timing of his death came just at the end of the Tucker Carlson trip to, to Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very much Putin showed like a nice side to the world, then he showed a nasty side to the world. And it all came within just a few days. But he is, Navalny is, is the latest in the line of Russian opposition candidates who've met difficult ends. Boris Nemtsov was killed, I think, 2015 outside of the Kremlin. And even though he's still very much alive and healthy, Gary Kasparov, the, the Russian chess champion, mm-hmm. He is a very much an outspoken, in-exile critic of the Putin government. So there's several generations now, Putin's been in power since the turn of the millennia, who have gotten nowhere, simply, other than to garner lots of international support and support from the West around uh, what they say Russia should be. But Russia's regime appears to be you know, pretty much reflecting that continuity of, dare I say, imperial rule that has characterized it throughout the centuries. What do you think the textbooks will say about Alexei Nelvani in that point of view of legacy? I mean, he was seen as Russia's Nelson Mandela by comparison, uh, you know, advocate for freedom, chose state captivity in uh, 2021 over a life in exile. I, I know you mentioned some of those points, but what do you think the textbooks will write? Well, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I have to say, if the textbooks are written many decades from now, he will be one of several people who stood against Putin's rule. The other one being Boris Nemtsov, who in his day in the 2000s was seen as charismatic and dynamic as well. So that's, I think, the point with Navalny. You know, clearly he was very media savvy in those around him. There's a documentary that's kicking around online people can watch about how he evaded and stood, against, stood up uh, against the state opposition. But I think, honestly, Russian rule is likely to exhibit more continuity going into the Mm. future 
based on how it's been run in the past. And that's not me passing a judgment on it. I think that's just a statement of, of reality. Now, when you have a martyr like, like, well, I guess we can say he's a martyr, like Alexei Navalny uh, dying in prison, it will usually fire up some segment of the society to get back into action. But is this likely to happen in today's Russia? No, I don't think so. I mean, there are sometimes uh, protests, but they don't last very long and they tend to be quashed quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, the norms of politics in one place just don't don't transfer universally. Every right. country has its own unique politics. And, you know, whether one likes the way Russia runs or not, it's run with extremely strong central rule over the largest territory on Earth. Mm-hmm. And that is the way that it is it's sort of settled in terms of the way uh, its political traditions are, and they, they dominate and subjugate any other challenges. That, that is just the pattern as it is. Dr. Shamir, uh, just a final point, um, and this is looking ahead a little bit. Uh, the U.S. set to announce a major package of sanctions against Russia tomorrow over the death of uh, the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, and the two-year Ukraine conflict as well. Your thoughts on what to expect from these uh, sanctions package? Do you think it's going to be a very robust one? I, I, sup- I mean, I don't know in, in specifics, but sure. one would have to ask, uh, what more is there to sanction, uh, given yeah. that Russia has been sanctioned repeatedly ever since MH17 was shot down a decade ago nearly? So I think, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be more sanctions. They'll be presented in a different way. They'll be tightened. There'll be loopholes that are looking to be shut down. But ultimately, the global economy is so different now, even compared to 20 years ago, that there are countries that just won't sanction Russia. That's how its economy has carried on moving over the last couple of years. All right, we've been speaking with Dr. Samir Puri, Associate Fellow, UK in the World Programme for Chatham House. Dr. Samir, appreciate your time. Take care and have a great Thursday ahead. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.